possible. All right, well, let's begin. Welcome to Sunday School. We are coming now near very close to the end of our course, to our first run through of the Answers Bible Curriculum. We've gone through uh, most of the Old Testament and New Testament, and I want to bring back to your mind the seven seas of history that we've discussed in previous lessons. Remember, this is our general outline for the history of the world and uh, that history is presented in the Bible, and we started in the beginning with creation, the creation account given in Genesis. We saw how the Lord created the earth and created mankind, and then we saw the fall of man into corruption, Adam and Eve's sin, and the plunging of the entire human race into rebellion against God. Then the catastrophe of the flood, in which the whole world was flooded, all life was wiped out except that which was saved on the ark and uh, that which existed in the seas. Then there was the confusion at Babel, where the nations, the peoples of the earth were separated according to their different languages because of man's pride in resisting the Lord and trying to build monument of greatness to himself in the city and tower of Babel. And then we had all that intervening period where the Lord was preparing the way for Christ. And this, this involved the kingdom of Israel, this involved the patriarchs, this involved the messianic prophecies, but ultimately it culminated with the coming of Christ, the beginning of the New Testament. And we also looked at Christ's ministry culminating in the cross, where he provides the perfect sacrifice for sin. He suffers the wrath of God on behalf of believers, all those who would look to Christ to be their substitute and to be their righteousness for them. And Christ went back into heaven, and he commissioned his apostles, his representatives, to continue to teach on his behalf, and to begin the church. And we looked at how the apostles ministered, and we looked at their teaching, and we looked at their letters. But now we come to the last C of the seven C's of history, and that is the consummation. Now, normally we use the term consummation in English to describe a bridegroom and a bride officially cementing their new marriage by coming together in physical union, cementing their new marriage bond. And in some ways, this final C term uh, does have that in mind because their church and Christ are described as if, as if in a wedding relationship, a marriage relationship. The church is the bride of Christ. And we're talking about the coming together of Jesus, our bridegroom, with us, his church. And we're going to dwell intimately with him forevermore. That's what the consummation is about. 
these future events are going to describe. But our English word for consummation ultimately comes from the Latin word that means a summing up, a finishing, or a completion. And I think this is more fundamentally what we're talking about when we, when we use the term consummation in the seven seas of history. And many scripture references that refer to the summing up of all things in Christ or talk about our salvation coming to a completion or um, uh, being finished or perfected. And all of that is involved in this seventh sea. What we're referring to then specifically by using this term are the series of events that mark the completion of human history, the marriage of Christ to his church, and the summing up of all things in God the Son. This is our last sea of history. But is it really history? Because it hasn't happened yet. So how could we use that term? Well, from one perspective, from a, a human perspective, you could say it's not history since it hasn't happened yet. But from another perspective, a divine perspective, it is indeed history. This is because of the nature of God and the nature of his revelation. God knows the future perfectly. Not only that, he is, as the sovereign Lord of the universe, he is also making the future come to pass. The future is so sure in God's mind that there are many scriptures that talk about future events in the past tense. It's as if they've already happened because they are so sure. Because of God's knowledge and because of God's sovereignty, the future is practically history to him. But not only that, God, as the transcendent God that he is, is eternal and outside of time. Now, this is hard for us to comprehend because we're very much bound to time, but he is not. He is not confined to the present. He is actually in the past and in the present and in the future all at the same time. We cannot, again, we cannot fully fathom that. But and this is another reason why the future is so sure and even history to God because he's already present in the future. It's all, in one sense, the future has already happened. It is happening and it will happen because God is outside of time or he's in every time at once. Again, I, I, that's really hard for us to comprehend, but that's what it is to be an eternal being. I mean, we are finite, so it, we, we, can't, we can't exist like that. But this is another reason why we can say that this seventh sea, this consummation, these final events, in a sense, they are really history. They're so sure they can be described as history. So all that to say, Christ's coming and all the events associated with that are as sure as everything that has already taken place, both in the scriptures and in the time since then. So this is our topic today. We're talking about the seventh sea of history. What does the Bible have to say about Jesus and his return? Well, a whole lot. And in a sense, we've saved the easiest lesson for last, right? No, not even close. This is an extremely big topic and in some ways difficult topic. We could not say all that needs to be said in just one lesson. We sometimes think that the Bible has... Um, we sometimes think of the Bible and its different books... And we think that Revelation is where we hear all about the future and the last days and, and the events of the consummation. And that's true. There's a lot to say in Revelation about those things. But that is not the only place where that appears. In fact, eschatology, the study or information regarding the last things and events, it's all over the scriptures. That branch of theology really begins in the first five books of Moses. And it extends throughout the Old Testament and then, of course, goes into the New Testament Gospels, 
the letters, and then finally the book of Revelation. I mean, consider just a couple of verses, um, even some of the ones that we've looked at together in our Sunday school class that have to do with eschatology that are not in the last book of the Bible. Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. I've used this reference a lot. It's one of those promises given to Israel that's not yet been fulfilled. Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. Moreover, Yahweh your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love Yahweh your God with all your heart and with all your soul so that you may live. This is, an, this is a prophecy related to the last days because it has not happened yet. Or Psalm 2, verses 8 and 9. Psalm 2, 8 and 9. This is the Lord speaking to his son, the Messiah. Ask of me, and I will surely give you the nations as your inheritance, and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. Or one more example, Malachi chapter 4, verses 1 to 4. And this one is one we definitely went through together. Malachi 4, verses 1 to 4. For behold, the day is coming, burning like a furnace, and all the arrogant and every evildoer will be chaff. And the day that is coming will set them ablaze, says Yahweh of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But as for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings, and you will go forth and skip like calves, skip about like calves from the stall. You will tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day which I am preparing, says Yahweh hosts. This is just to give you an example of how truth, declarations about the last days and last things, they're all over the scriptures. In fact, I would bet, and I haven't checked this, so I can't, I can't say this with certainty, but I would bet that there are more books of the Bible in both the Old Testament and the New Testament that have something to say about eschatology than those that don't. Because it's all over the place. So this isn't something that we can just file away as like, oh yeah, that's like that little thing that appears in the end of the Bible. No, it's all over the place. Which means that we're going to have to narrow our focus today if we're going to be able to say anything even sort of uh, introductory regarding the consummation and the last things. So here's what we are going to discuss today. Here's our, oops, here's our more narrow focus. We're first going to define three key terms in relation to Christ's coming. We're not going to try and discuss everything. We're just going to focus on three terms and three passages that talk about those three key terms having to do with the last things. We're also going to outline the major views when it comes to Christians, Protestants, when it comes to Christ's coming. And then we'll briefly consider what are the biblical applications and exhortations related to the expectation of our Lord's coming. That's still a lot to do, so... Let's ask the Lord's help as we continue in this lesson today. Our God, we thank you for the coming consummation, but help me to be able to describe this in a way that is helpful, even in the limited scope and time we have today. Lord, I pray that you'd be with me and you'd be with your people, that you would encourage them and that you would sober them by this information about your coming. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to start first with defining three key theological terms related to the consummation. And the first place we're going to go to do that is 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 to 18. The question that really is forming our investigation of these three terms is this. Christ is going to return, but what exactly is going to happen as part of his return? And three terms that are used in answering that question 
are and are really part of any discussion of eschatology are the terms rapture, tribulation, and millennium. Rapture, tribulation, and millennium. But are these really biblical terms? And if so, from where do they come? Well, we're going to investigate that. And we're starting here in Thessalonians. Now remember that First Thessalonians is this letter of exhortation towards perseverance and holiness and through suffering in light of Christ's coming. So there's a very good chance we're going to find one of those terms, if not more than one of those terms, in this book. It is a, a book that is known for its eschatological teaching. Chapter 4 is, a, is where we see a section of exhortation and application in Thessalonians. And in verse 13, he shifts to a specific discussion of last things and the church. So look at verses 13 to 18. We'll read that together. 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 13 to 18. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Let's observe this passage. Notice what prompts Paul to speak these words in verses 13 to 14. There's a misunderstanding in the Thessalonian church about those who are asleep and the coming of the Lord Jesus. Now, in context, it's clear we're not talking about people who are just taking a nap. What kind of people are those who have fallen asleep? These are the dead. These are the departed ones. These are those people who have already died. And that's, that's even said explicitly later in the text. So there's a misunderstanding about dead, departed saints and the coming of the Lord. And this misunderstanding has affected the believers in Thessalonica to the point of grief. Even grief on the level of those who have no hope. So Paul wants to clarify and correct this misunderstanding in the church. And in verse 14, he clarifies that those who have died in Jesus, departed saints, will actually come with Jesus when Jesus appears again. And that's not all. And verse 15 clarifies that believers who are alive at the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have already died, those believers who have already died at Jesus' coming. In fact, verses 16 to 17 give us an order of events, and I've reflected it on this slide. Paul says that first the Lord himself will descend from heaven. And notice this descent is accompanied by three elements. There is a shout, there is the voice of the archangel, and there is a sounding of the trumpet of God. Second, the dead saints in Christ rise. They rise from the dead. And then thirdly, the alive saints also rise. Notice the then in the beginning of verse 17. This term is reflected, or this term, our English translation, reflects what appears in the Greek. This part about the alive saints rising, it occurs after the dead saints have risen. This is the next step in the sequence. And this, is, this makes sense with what Paul's already said. 
those who are alive will by no means precede those who have already fallen asleep. No, clearly they, what happens to them comes after the rising of those who have already slept or those who are already asleep. And notice where everyone's going. They rise to the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And notice how they get there. The term that we have in our translation is they will be caught up. We could also translate the same Greek term as they will be snatched up or snatched away or stolen or even taken away. So then these alive saints and the dead saints, they are snatched upward and brought together to be with the Lord. And that's the result, kind of like number four in our sequence, the saints will always be with the Lord. This is the new permanent state of believers. They will meet Christ in the air, and they will never be separated from him. Notice the sudden switch to we in the text. He doesn't say this will happen to believers, but he says this will, we will always be with the Lord. Paul, his companions included, and the Thessalonian believers. This is not an abstract truth. This has personal application for the church. So even for us, even for you at Calvary, we will always be with the Lord when these things take place. And notice Paul's summary application to these truths in verse 18. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. So whatever Paul's telling the church, whatever you were grieving about related to the dead saints and the Lord's coming, grieve no more. Tell each other about this truth and take comfort. All right, so we've made these observations. Let's just ask a couple of questions related to interpretation. What was this misunderstanding in the church that was causing them so much grief? We don't know specifically because the text doesn't tell us, but from what is implied, there seems to have been some, some kind of idea that dead believers, those who had already died but trusted in Christ, they were going to somehow miss out on the Lord's coming. They might even become second-class citizens in the kingdom of God. And perhaps the believers who are alive would no longer be able to see departed believers ever again. They would be separate from now on. They wouldn't be able to be reunited with each other because, well, they already died, so they missed out on the Lord's coming. They can't be with the rest of the group. There's some sort of misunderstanding along those lines. And that would be a pretty sad prospect, right? You'd grieve intensely over your departed brethren if you thought, hey, they're not, they're not going to be able to be with us when we see the Lord. And we might not be able to see them ever again. But Paul says, look, guys, it's actually the opposite. Far from being left out, those who have died already in the Lord, they're going to be the first participants in Christ's coming. In fact, they're going to be participating before you. They won't be separated from you or Christ. You will be gathered together with them and be forever with the Lord. And that would be a pretty comforting correction. That appears to be the issue. Another question. How is it that God will both bring with him those who are already dead and cause them to rise and meet him in the air? How could, how could those both be true? Well, most likely Paul is making a distinction between the souls of believers, of those who have already died, and the bodies of those believers still left on the earth. 
the bodies of the believers who are already with Christ, who come with him when he appears in the air. I'm sorry, the souls of, how do I want to say this? The souls are already with the Lord. They come with him, but their bodies are raised from the earth and they are joined to their souls in the air and they are now given their resurrected bodies forever. This is one of the truths of the New Testament, that there will be a resurrection, a full redemption, even of our bodies. Even when our spirits or our souls are with the Lord, there will still be a resurrection of our bodies. And that appears to be what Paul is describing here, that there is this joining of um, the soul and body at this uh, during this event that Paul describes. In this sense, the Lord is able to bring his saints with him, but also as the bodies rise, he meets them in the air. That's probably what Paul is getting at here. It is possible that we need to translate the term that is translated bring in our text that the Lord will bring with him. It can also be translated lead or lead away. So it doesn't, doesn't explicitly mean that he has brought them with him, but that as he gathers them together, he leads them, um, he leads them away or leads them going forward. So that is another way of looking at this text. But either way, this is, this is totally possible for the Lord to do. But probably the biggest question here, I told you this would be important for looking at our terms. Specifically, the one I want to highlight here is the term rapture. We see the rapture here. But you say, but where's rapture in the text? That word's not in the text. Well, actually, our word rapture is roughly equivalent to the Greek term used here for snatching away. In Latin, the verb raptura also means to snatch away, to carry off, or to abduct. So while the English word rapture doesn't appear in our translation, the idea is most clearly there. So here's the big, here's the big point. When it comes to describing Christ's coming, one key element is the rapture, the snatching away of believers or saints to meet the Lord in the air. This is one of the things that Paul says is going to happen. We see it here, and we do see it also mentioned in other scriptures. So this is our first key term. The rapture is a biblical concept, and it is involved in the consummation. Let's now look at our second term, tribulation. And for this one, let's turn over to Matthew chapter 24. Matthew 24, verses 15 to 31. Now remember that the Gospel of Matthew is especially written to show forth Jesus as Israel's Messiah King, but also that though his people reject his kingdom, it will still come. Messiah's kingdom will still come. Now chapters 24 and 25 in the book of Matthew are one of Jesus' major discourses. The book of Matthew features several major discourses from Jesus. The one in these two chapters is the Olivet Discourse, a uh, long talk or speech that Jesus gives during his Passion Week from the Mount of Olives to his disciples. This discourse begins after Jesus announces that the great temple of Jerusalem will be utterly destroyed. And the disciples ask for clarification. If you go to Matthew 24, verse 3, you can see the question that the disciples ask. They say, well, I'll just read the whole verse. Matthew 24, verse 3. As he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? 
Now, you may notice the disciples link together the destruction of the temple with Jesus coming and the end of time, the end of the age. They see these things happening all together, happening simultaneously. But Jesus' answer complicates their pre-understanding. In verses 4 to 14, which we won't read, we don't have time, Jesus tells them what will happen before the end. There are going to be events that are happening as we get closer to the end and happening increasingly. But in verses 15 to 31, he talks about the end itself. And that's the section I want to read together with you. So look at Matthew 24, verses 15 to 31. Starting in verse 15. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. Whoever is on the housetop must not go down to get the things out that are in his house. Whoever is in the field must not turn back to get his cloak. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. But pray that your flight will not be in the winter or on a Sabbath. For then there will be a great tribulation, such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. Unless those days have been cut short, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. And if anyone says to you, behold, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe him. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders, so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. Behold, I have told you in advance. So if they say to you, Behold, he is in the wilderness, do not go out. Or, Behold, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe them. For just as the lightning comes from the east and flashes even to the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. But immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from the sky, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet, and will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of the sky to the other. All right, there's a large text. We can't look at all the details, but let's notice some things. We do see the word tribulation in this text. Verse 21, for then there will be a great tribulation. Now, he, Jesus has already mentioned the word earlier in chapter 24. He talks about that there will be tribulations before the end, including persecution for preaching the gospel. But now he remarks about a great tribulation. Now, the word tribulation, it just means a cause of great trouble or suffering. Tribulation, a cause of great trouble or suffering. So if there's a great tribulation, then we're talking about something extremely intense. The idea of great is already in the word tribulation. Jesus promises that at the end, as part of the end, there will be great trouble and suffering of such magnitude and scope that nothing has ever been like it or ever will be like it ever again. And notice what event is, uh, what event begins or is at least linked with the beginning of the great tribulation. And that is the placing of the abomination of desolation in the holy place. That term holy place must be referring to the temple in Jerusalem. That's how that term is used throughout the scripture. This presupposes the existence of a temple in the days of the end. There will be a temple and there will be some sort of defiling of that temple 
a placing of an abomination of desolation even in the holy place of that temple. Now notice, though we do have that link between the beginning of the end or some sort of escalation in the tribulation of the end, there's no precise timing given for the length of this tribulation. We're not told how long it will last, but we are told that it is shortened for the sake of the elect, because otherwise no one would survive. Now notice what Jesus also warns in verses um, 27 to 28 regarding those who say that Christ has come. Look, Messiah is here. What does Jesus say automatically disproves the idea that the Messiah has come secretly and you need to go find him or find him out? What concept is linked with Messiah's coming so that there won't be a there won't be a need for you to be like, oh look, he's over there. Come and find out. Notice the two analogies Jesus gives. He says, when he comes, it's gonna be like the lightning in the sky. You don't have to tell somebody, oh, you know, there's a flash. You can all see it because it lights up the whole sky. Or he says it's gonna be like vultures gathering around a corpse. Maybe we're not as familiar with this because uh, I'm more urban living, but when there's a dead animal or a carcass in a certain place, you can see it from miles around because you see this circling of vultures and other carrion type birds in the sky. You can see it from a long distance away. It's obvious that someone has died because you can see the vultures. So it will be with the coming of the Messiah. It's going to be obvious. You won't need somebody to tell you, oh, look, come and see. No, you'll know. So he says, don't don't be deceived by these false messiahs and these false claims. And then notice what Jesus says will happen at the end of the great tribulation, the end of the end. He says there will be great disturbances in the cosmos. There will be disruption of the heavenly powers. And then the Son of Man will appear in the clouds with glory. The tribes of the earth will mourn. There will be angels. There will be a trumpet. There will be a gathering of his elect. You may notice some of this sounds a little bit like 1 Thessalonians 4, passage we just looked at. So from, from just these, we see more about what events are going to be associated with the end. We could say more about this passage, but we need to keep moving. Let's do ask a few interpretation questions, though, based also on this passage and the idea of tribulation. Clearly, this passage tells us that there will be a time of great trouble, a time of tribulation in the future uh, as part of the end. But where does Christ's coming fit in relation to this great tribulation? If we're thinking about timing, how does tribulation and how does Christ's coming fit together? In this passage, it's pretty clear that Jesus' coming is after the tribulation. He talks about there's going to be this tribulation. There's going to be a time of great trouble. And then the Lord will appear. The sign of the Lord will be in the sky. He'll come in the clouds of glory and various other things will happen. So we see that Jesus comes after the tribulation. Now, we also know that there are some parallels to the First Thessalonians 4 passage, or at least some things that sound similar. There's, that, there's the mention of an angel, a trumpet, and a gathering of the elect. So then do verses 30 and 31 of Matthew refer to the rapture, the same thing that 1 Thessalonians 4 discusses? 
Well, it's possible. And some theologians do take this passage that way. And that means, therefore, the rapture would take place at the end of the tribulation. But there are other New Testament verses that have to do with the rapture, which also need to be taken into account when we're putting together our, our chronology of the last things. Uh, I'm not going to discuss that just yet. We'll talk about some of the different views a little bit later on. But let's not forget, though, that the Old Testament has also described repeatedly a different kind of gathering of God's people at the coming of Messiah. There is the rapture, yes, but don't forget some of the same or some of the Old Testament passages that we've looked at together, such as Isaiah 43, verses 5 to 7. I don't know if we looked at this passage specifically, but we certainly looked at some like it. Isaiah 43, verses 5 to 7 says this, speaking of Israel. Isaiah 43, verses 5 to 7. Do not fear, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east and gather you from the west. I will say to the north, give them up, and to the south, do not hold them back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name and whom I have created for my glory, whom I have formed, even whom I have made. So there is another gathering that we are that we need to consider when it comes to the last things. That is the gathering of the people of Israel from all over the world to return to their land. And this is not simply a gathering that was fulfilled in Israel's return from exile in Babylon. But that gathering was from the north. But God says this will be a gathering from north, east, west, and south, from all over the world. And that, from the Old Testament, happens at the return of but that, that happens with the coming of the Messiah. And that fits exactly with what Matthew is talking about here. Remember, Matthew also is a book that is focused, has a very much a flavor of the Jews. Throughout the book of Matthew, he's showing Jesus to be the Jewish Messiah. He's talking about the kingdom that the Jews have rejected, but is still coming. So there's good reasons for us to see that this gathering here in Matthew 24 is referring to the gathering that has to do with Israel. Though, again, some take it as the gathering of all saints in the rapture. So, what have we seen so far? We've seen that in the coming consummation, there will be a rapture, a snatching away of believers to be with the Lord in the air. We've also seen that there will be tribulation. There'll be tribulation that comes before the end and before Christ's coming. Tribulation is part of the end, but before Christ's coming. Now, the last term I want to identify with you is the term millennium. Is the millennium in the Bible? Of course, we're not talking about the Millennium Falcon. I'm not even sure how that name makes sense. That no, makes for good sci-fi. Let's sort of turn to Revelation chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 to 15. All right, we finally come to the book of Revelation. Yes, this book has a lot to say about what will happen in the final days. In Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 to 21, our writer, John, He's having these visions from the Lord about what will happen in the future. In Revelation 19, verses 11 to 21, John describes a vision of the Lord appearing with his army of saints. And in this vision, the Lord slays all the rebels of the earth who have gathered against the Messiah and against his people. He slays them with the sword of his mouth, and it is a great slaughter. And, it's, and part of that slaughter is the the deposition, the casting down of the great and evil human ruler of the world, 
who is called the beast in Revelation. We sometimes call him Antichrist. He is, at the end of Revelation 19, thrown alive into the lake of fire. So the army of rebels has been destroyed. Antichrist, or the beast, has been dealt with. And then we get Revelation 20, verses 1 to 15. And let's now read that together. Starting in verse 1, Revelation 20, verses 1 to 15. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. Then I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received a mark on their forehead and on their hand, and they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. When the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for the war. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore. And they came up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city, and fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are also, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books, according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Okay, here's an even longer passage than our last one. So obviously, again, we cannot observe everything we could, but let's notice a few things. Now, the term millennium does not appear in our translation of the passage, but we do see its equivalent. A millennium simply means a period of 1,000 years. And we see the term 1,000 years six times in our section of text. Notice that the millennium appears, or this specific period and the kingdom that makes up this 1,000 year period, it appears in the text, in our text, after the description of Christ's coming and after the destruction of the rebellious enemies. And that would seem to suggest that this millennium takes place after the event of Christ's coming. That would be the sequence. Notice what also happens during this 1,000 year period. Two main things. It says Satan is bound in the abyss, sealed there. And notice the reason why. So that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years are completed. 
But part of this 1,000 years is a very unique thing. Satan is bound away, probably Satan and his demons. There will not be demonic, satanic deception going on in the earth during this period of 1,000 years. That's one thing to notice. Second thing to notice during this 1,000 years is that the martyred saints, those who died for the name of Jesus, and they would not submit to Satan and his evil ruler, the beast and Antichrist, they come to life during these 1,000 years and they reign with Christ. This is part of what's called the first resurrection. Notice what happens at the end of the millennium, at the end of the 1,000 years. Satan is released. He leads one final rebellion of men against God and against God's saints. These rebels are destroyed. Satan himself is cast into the lake of fire forever. And notice the purpose of this lake of fire is told, us, told for us specifically. It, they are put there. Satan is put there. The beast is put there. Others are put there to be tormented day and night forever and ever. Also, at the end of the millennium, the first earth and heaven flee away. That is, there's no place for them. They are ended. They're gone. And then the great white throne judgment occurs. Every unbeliever is now raised from the dead and then judged according to his deeds. Those who are judged apparently are all pronounced guilty because they are thrown into the lake of fire. And once they are judged or Rather, once death and Hades, and those are both terms just referring to the grave. Hades means the grave or the place of the dead. Once death and Hades give up their dead, those places themselves are thrown into the lake of fire. That's the end of them. And so are the people who once were part of them, those who did not belong to Christ and were not in the book of life. Of course, this is a pretty fearful aspect of the vision. This is describing the, the final judgment and the eternal torment of those outside of Christ. But what happens to the saints? We saw that they, they reign with the Lord during this 1,000-year period, but what else? What happens next? Well, that comes in the next two chapters of Revelation, which we, don't, we won't look at today, but that will come in another lesson. So we see some things related to the, to the term millennium in this passage. Now let's ask two interpretation questions. Is this 1,000 years literally 1,000 years, or is it just a long period of time? Now, this question is at the heart of different eschatological views among Protestants. At our church, at Calvary, we take the view that the millennium is indeed 1,000 literal years. We don't really have time to go through all the reasons why today, except to say that this view accords well with a fundamental aspect of hermeneutics specifically the historical grammatical um, method of hermeneutics. That principle is this. If the plain sense or the literal sense makes sense, seek no other sense. You've probably heard that before. If the plain sense makes sense, seek no other sense. Plain sense here would be a literal 1,000 years. There are no clear clues in the context that this number is meant to be symbolic or this period is symbolic. Rather, the surrounding details would indicate the opposite. You have it set in contrast, for example, to a period of a short time. So we would say that this is a literal 1,000 years. But if you want a much fuller answer, I can recommend you some resources. Our website, our pastor has a sermon series entitled Examining End Time Teaching. This is from 2010. You can listen to those audio recordings. Pastor covers these passages, this passage and others specifically. And you can hear why 
more why we take this as 1,000 literal years. Or better yet, you can pick up Pastor's book because we actually took that sermon series, you may remember it, and we put it into a book, basically the same title, Examining End Times Teaching. It's available, I think might still be in the book nook, but it's, if not, it's definitely available at Amazon.com uh, for an ebook, $1 ebook, or a paperback. I think it's $10. Anyways, you can hear more there, or you can just talk to the pastor or any of the elders. You can hear more there why we take this view of 1,000 literal years and answers to other eschatological questions. But again, we can't talk about that in full today. One other thing I do want to bring up, there's a reference here to the first resurrection. And in this resurrection, the martyred saints reign with Christ. Now, is this the same resurrection that Paul describes in 1 Thessalonians 4 in connection with the rapture? Sounds pretty similar, right? If there's a resurrection at the rapture, the dead rise, according to Paul in 1 Thessalonians 4, isn't that what's also being described here? Does that mean the rapture also takes place after the tribulation and at the beginning of the millennium? Again, some people would say, yes, that is, that is one way to take this. They would say that these two passages are describing the same event and they are happening at the same time. But there is another way to look at this. And that is that this resurrection described in Revelation Notice it is of specifically the martyrs of the tribulation, those who would not accept the mark of the beast, those who would not bow to the world system. It is they who are specifically identified as rising and reigning with Christ. So it is possible that the resurrection referred to here in Revelation 20 is specifically for them. There is no mention of a rapture in Revelation chapter 20, no snatching up, no, no gathering in the air. In fact, the word or the concept of rapture is not in the book of Revelation, except for Revelation chapter 3, where Jesus says to one of the churches, I will keep you from the hour of trial, which is to come. So they are not necessarily the same, the exact same event. What, um, what Revelation describes can be part of, connected to what First Thessalonians describes, the first resurrection, that, that concept applies to both or can apply to both, not necessarily happening at the exact same time, however. The rapture and the resurrection, not necessarily or the resurrection here of the tribulation saints, of those who died as martyrs, not necessarily happening at the same time. Again, some say it, it is, but some are, there is another way of looking at that. So what have we seen? What are the, the main things I want you to see from all this discussion? We've seen that these three terms are clearly biblical when it comes to describing the consummation or the last things, the last events. There is indeed going to be a rapture associated with the Lord's coming. There is going to be tribulation associated with the Lord's coming. And there's going to be a millennium associated with the Lord's coming. Now, what is the relationship between these events? What is the sequence? What is the timing? Now we begin to see something of that answer, or something of an answer to that, even from the passages we looked at. But this is where I wanted to introduce to you the prevailing views among Protestants. As many of you know, even our dear brothers and sisters in the Lord do not fully agree when it comes to the question of eschatology. Brethren that we would otherwise have sweet fellowship with, we would be partners in ministry, we're advancing the same gospel, we love the same Lord, we both belong to him, we can have pretty different views when it comes to the consummation and the last things. 
not only are there different views as to the exact sequence of events, there are even some who give up on finding any answer at all. They say, well, you know what? We don't know exactly what's gonna happen in the end. It's just divisive. It's not that important. Now, certainly the scriptures are not at fault here. The, as with many other doctrinal issues that we still have differences among those who are even still brothers, the problem is not the word and is not God, it is the weakness of men. That's the reason why we have difficulty and that's the reason why we, we don't have unity on this issue. Central to the issue of eschatology is the practice and the understanding of hermeneutics. Remember that word hermeneutics just means principles of interpretation. How do you interpret the Bible? Are you consistent in that interpretation? That's going to affect your eschatology. That's going to affect your understanding of last things and their timing. Now, this is not to, I'm saying all this, this is not to say that everything related to the last days is simple and easy to understand. There are some pretty difficult puzzles to work through, even if you are trying to be faithful and unbiased as an interpreter. So we should have patience with one another when it comes to this issue, especially where we're like, why don't you see this? You should understand this. Be patient, help them through it. But I, I, I profoundly disagree with those who say that, well, eschatology is not important, or it's just too unclear, or it's just too hard to understand. It was given to us for our understanding and for our edification. Multiple times throughout the, the New Testament and even the Old Testament, descriptions of the end are given so that people will not only understand, but become sanctified, become encouraged, and be warned. You say, oh, I can't really understand it. Then you're going to miss out on those purposes. And that's not the reason why God gave us those things. Not so we would just say, oh, that's first, that's, that has no application to me. It is something that we need to work through. So with those introductory comments said, let me outline for you just briefly four main views among Christians when it comes to the events of the end times. I should mention that there are many variations to these four that I'm just going to briefly introduce to you. So if you if you say, yeah, I ascribe to that, but not all of that, or that sounds a little bit like it, but not totally, understand there's a lot of variation. But these three terms that we looked at, rapture, tribulation, and millennium, they help describe the four main views of the timing of the last events of the consummation. And I'll look at these one by one with you with the help of some diagrams. So first, there's the view called post-tribulational premillennialism. Okay, whoa, 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 what do those terms mean? Actually, they're pretty descriptive of what the view actually is. They basically are just describing the timing of these events the rapture, the tribulation, and the, and the millennial period or the millennial kingdom. Post-tribulational premillennialism is the view that asserts that the rapture takes place post or after the period of tribulation. So that's the first part of the term, post-tribulational. Rapture takes place after the tribulation. And then the coming of Christ happens pre or before the kingdom of Christ, the millennial kingdom of 1,000 years. So post-tribulational or post-trib, as it's sometimes associated or sometimes called, premillennialism or pre-mill means rapture takes place at the end of the tribulation and Jesus comes before the millennium. And you can see that reflected in the diagram. So in this view, the rapture has believers go up to meet the Lord in the air and then come right back down because Jesus is establishing his kingdom on the earth. 
This is post-tribulational premillennialism. Now, similar view is pre-tribulational premillennialism. And I notice the description is, is informative in the same way. In this view, the rapture takes place not after the tribulation period, but before the tribulation period. The believers are the believers on the on the earth at that time are actually rescued from the tribulation. They don't go through it. And Christ comes again, as with the first view, before the premillennial kingdom. Uh, before the, I'm sorry, before the period of the millennium and before the kingdom. So rapture takes place before the tribulation and the coming of Jesus takes place before the millennium. Now, this is the view that our church affirms. We believe that the most hermeneutically sound and consistent view that is fairest to all the scriptures, um, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, is the pre-trib, pre-mill view. There will be a rapture. There will be a tribulation period. Then Christ will come and establish his millennial kingdom. Now, it's worth noting that both the both versions of premillennialism, post-trib and pre-trib, they generally see mankind getting worse and worse until the time of judgment, until the tribulation period. This is in stark contrast to the third main view, post-millennialism. Now, in the post-millennial view, the church experienced experiences or experienced great tribulation in the past and or in the present, but the church will eventually triumph. The church will succeed in its mission to bring the gospel to the world, and the world and its society will be reformed. Once humanity reaches a certain level of revival, a kingdom, a millennial period of prosperity and justice will come to the earth. So it's kind of like the earth or the world gets better and better and better and better until we arrive to this golden age known as the millennial period or the millennial kingdom. And at the end of that period, end of that kingdom, end of that millennium, Jesus returns. Hence the name post-millennial. Jesus coming comes at the end or after the millennial period. Jesus comes to establish his, or at the end of the triumphant kingdom for final judgment and for the completion of the world's salvation. That's the third view. One more main view, very strong in the reformers and those who hold to the tradition of the reformers is ah millennialism. Now you may notice the prefix ah in the name for this view, that means without. Ah millennialism says that there is no millennium or no millennial kingdom, or that if there is, it is symbolic and or spiritual. In the ah millennial view, the tribulation period described in the scriptures actually describes the present evil age. And things will get maybe worse before the end, but we're in the tribulation right now. It is, it is something that characterizes the church um, throughout the present age. And also right now is the millennium or uh, something symbolic like the millennium. Though Christ does not literally reign on the earth in person, in the amillennial view, he does reign in the church or in the hearts of believers, or he does reign in heaven. It is a spiritual kingdom that he has established, and that's not going to be something established in the future. That's established right now. So tribulation and millennium are actually happening right now in the church. And after an undefined period of this tribulation and this millennial rule, this spiritual rule, Christ will return and the rapture will take place, the resurrection will take place, and the judgment will take place. So again, that's just a broad brush 
outline of the main views among among many Christians, among many Protestants, Protestants, there are many variations to that. Now, again, we don't have time to analyze these different views or why to argue specifically why we hold to the pre-mill view, the pre-trade pre-mill view and, and not the others. Again, I recommend you check out those that sermon series. Actually, Pastor has a number of sermon series on the end times you can find on our website. Again, that book that I mentioned. And also, I mentioned to you this uh, not too long ago, but the Master Seminary did a faculty lecture series on premillennialism this year, and you can find it. I put the, the specific URL on there, but you don't have to copy all of that down. Just go to tms.edu, go to resources, and then click Chapel, Chapel Archive, and you can see the five or six lessons specifically on premillennialism coming at it from different angles. What does the New Testament say? What does the Old Testament say? How does this interact with church history? and theology, systematic theology, etc. I would highly recommend to you, that to you. That was a great blessing to me this year as I got to listen to those lectures even in chapel here at the seminary. Anyways, you can find much more about why we hold to what we do if you check out those resources. Now you may have noticed, continuing to move on here, that despite the differences in these four main views, there are some consistencies. They all see a place for these different elements, the rapture, the tribulation, and the millennium, though sometimes understood in different ways, they're all present. Moreover, they all feature the same ending, which is the return of Christ, judgment of the earth, and the, the move into the eternal state with the Lord and his people dwelling together forever. So this should give us some reason for encouragement and fellowship, even among the even with and among the brethren with whom we disagree when it comes to eschatology. And the differences in interpretation are significant. I'm not saying, hey, look, we have some commonalities, so let's not pay attention to the other parts. No, these kind of are big deals. If you think that the rapture takes place before the tribulation, you're going to prepare in a different way than those who think the rapture is going to take place at the end of the tribulation. If you expect to go through the tribulation, you're going to need to, you need to do some preparation, Right? So those differences are not insignificant, but we can agree with our brethren and we can take comfort together. We can encourage one another on those things that we for sure agree on. Jesus will return. He's coming to save and he's coming to forever be with his own. And he's coming to judge sin and all sinners. Now, just a few more thoughts before we end today. Some questions to consider. Can anyone know the exact time of Jesus' coming? Well, Jesus said, no one knows the day or the hour. He said this to his disciples. And when his disciples said, hey, is it this time that you're going to establish your kingdom? He says, it is not for you to know. It is not for you to know the times and the epics that the Lord has determined in his own sovereignty. You need to focus on what your mission is now. Share the gospel. We're not greater than the apostles and the disciples. They weren't allowed to know. They were not told to be concerned about the specific dates. They were told to be faithful and to be ready for his return. So it is with us. We are not to set dates for the Lord's return. If we do, we'll be shown to be fools, as have so many different Christians throughout history. They say, he's going to come back now. He's going to come back this year, this time. They've all been proven wrong. That's because no one knows and no one can know. But we can get ready. Another question, why hasn't Jesus come back yet? 
I mean, everybody's been expecting this for more than 2,000 years. Why is he not coming? Why is he delaying? What's he waiting for? Actually, the Lord is two things to say in response, and both of them are captured well in 2 Peter verses 3, 8, and 9. First of all, remember that the Lord's understanding of time is different than ours. He's not tapping his foot and looking at his watch and saying, well, man, just got to keep on waiting and waiting. No, for the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, a thousand years like a day. That is to say, he's outside of time. It's not a, it's not a long time for him. It may seem long to us. And another thing to say is, why is the Lord waiting? This is what Peter says in verse 9, 2 Peter 3, verse 9. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. That's a profound statement. The reason the Lord has not come yet is because of the Lord's kindness and patience for the world. He's given them time. He's given them more time to repent. He is by nature a saving God. That's his great kindness to the world that he hasn't come back yet. But he won't forget his own. He's not going to let them suffer forever. He's going to vindicate them, so he will come. But he hasn't come yet. The Lord has his perfect time, but he's patient because of his love. He will come. Now, how should we be affected by his coming? Again, I'll just briefly mention a few things, but some of the commands and exhortations given throughout the New Testament, Old Testament, because we know the Lord is coming, because it's as sure as history, we should conduct ourselves with fear while we're on the earth. We should tremble at the magnitude of what is going to take place in the judgment. We should be holy. We should act soberly. We should have hope. We should have confidence. We should lift up our heads and say our redemption is not far away. We should have peace. We should be filled with joy. And we should persevere through suffering. We know it's not going to last forever. Eventually, the Lord will come, and he will bring to a completion his salvation plan. Now, again, I, I would encourage you to meditate more on this. We can only broach the subject. Now, that's it for this week. And that's actually, that's it for me for a little while, because as many of you know, I'm going to be away the next couple of weeks. My wife and I, along with a number of others here at Grace Community Church, we're going on a short-term ministry trip to Ukraine. And many of you know this, the emails that I've sent. This is also why I'm wearing this shirt today. I don't know if you can tell, but it says a short-term missions trip on the side. And it's about about our Ukraine trip. So I won't be with you for the last two lessons of our Answers Bible Curriculum course, which kind of makes me sad. I've I've enjoyed going through this with you all. Uh, We've, you know, moved from the beginning of the scriptures until now. I've learned a lot, probably just as much uh, as you have learned. I feel like now that I know more, I need to go back to the beginning because I understand things a lot better. (laughs) But I'm not going to be with you for the next two lessons. I I trust the elders have figured out uh, who's going to be, who's going to be doing that instead. But I would very much appreciate, Emma and I would very much appreciate, our whole team, our Ukraine team would very much appreciate your prayers as we go to Ukraine. We're going there from June 14th to June 30th. We're looking to assist the church there and the missionary there as well as do some evangelistic outreach especially to the children in the area around the church in Kiev. So please remember us, even though I'm not going to be with you. And may the Lord be pleased to 
glorify himself by saving and saving those who don't know him and encouraging those who do know him in Kiev, even through us. But it's been a pleasure going through the curriculum with you and I look forward to giving you the report on Ukraine. Um, not only while we're there, you can follow us on Facebook and you can, you can get some somewhat current updates on what we're doing there. But I look forward to you to reporting afterwards all that the Lord has done. Let me close in prayer. Lord God, I thank you for these people. I thank you for your coming. Lord, I thank you that we do have a hope, but it is to be one with sobriety because you will come. You will come both to save and to judge. I pray, Lord, that we would be ready and that your spirit would make us ready. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, thank you all. And I'll hopefully get to talk to you or rather update you. Emma and I will update you through the Facebook page on our trip in Ukraine. And otherwise, I will see you again soon.